Hey, this is Alex Moore, lead pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Thanks for taking time to listen to this message. For more information or to donate, visit newlifekc.com. Well, hey, everybody. Uh, I'm Pastor Alex, and today we are kicking off a new teaching series for the month of October called The Bible Doesn't Say That. Uh, Nowhere does Jesus say YOLO. Uh, You only live once. Um, So here's the deal. Um, You may or may not know this, but back in 1995, Guinness World Records announced that the Bible was the best-selling book of all time. It had approximately, at that time, five billion copies that had been sold or distributed. That was B, billion. Um, Now, which this is hard to believe, um, almost 30 years later, some of you are like, 95 wasn't that long ago, was it? Almost, almost. Now, almost 30 years later, they project that there's over 6 billion Bibles that have been printed and are in distribution throughout the world. It is the number one bestseller of all time. And when you hear that, most people aren't surprised. They're like, well, of course, it's an old book. It's been in print longer than any other book. Of course, it's probably sold more. How could it keep up, you know? How could books like Twilight or Harry Potter or whatever's on the New York Times bestseller list, they're too new. Like, of course, this one's always going to be there. But what's mind-blowing to some people is to find out that the Bible is actually the best-selling book of the year almost every single year. Uh, They estimate that the Bible sells between 20 to 25 million copies every single year. How many of you, just by a quick show of hands, say, I own a printed copy of the Bible? You have a printed copy of the Bible at your house? Okay, look around. You guys see people? All right, all right, put your hands down. Um, If you don't have a Bible, listen, we got some Bibles for you, and we will give you a Bible. Like, look at these. These These are called free Bibles. Three free Bibles. So if you want a Bible before church is over, come and grab one of those. Um, let me do this. Uh, let's go a step further. How many of you have more than one printed copy of the Bible? How many of you guys have more than one? Well, look at you people. All right, we're going to go really extreme here. We're going to find out who our Bible thumpers are in the room, all right? Because some of you, I think uh, this is like a confession time. We're going to be honest in church. We're not going to hide the truth. How many of you would say, you know, I think in my household... Like to me, if, if you're married, if you got kids, me and my household, we have at least 10 printed copies of the Bible. Look at you, Bible-thumping, Bible nerds. Look at you. Not bad, not bad. Here's the deal. I've got to confess to you, um, I, have, uh, I have a lot of Bibles, and, um, and this bag is heavier than you think. Um, I don't know if it's because I grew up in a pastor's home or what the deal is, but I have, um, this bag is completely full of just Bibles. Uh, These are Bibles that I own. These are my Bibles. Um, This here, uh, this Bible uh, I got when I was going to uh, like fourth grade. Um, What was cool in those days, like I don't know if you guys know this, this is like old school. Um, It would have like places in the front of it where your parents could write, like, it was to my son on his ninth birthday. That was fourth grade right there. We have fourth grade happening. Uh, this was uh, the Living Bible. Some of you guys that were kind of old school, you remember the green Living Bible. You're like, wow, the Bible makes sense. It's kind of fun. Uh, you got that one. Uh, this here is a Bible that has um, study notes in it, but they're more for you to have a small group conversation. So as you're reading the Bible, you can say, I have a question to ask. Okay, this is going to be 
too small of a table. We have the message. How many of you guys have the message? It's a paraphrase, you know, Eugene Peterson, let's go. Not bad, uh-oh, I have a Bible that's still in a box. And it's not, because it's, it's not because it's new, it's just because I wanted to keep it nice. And so my name is in, in print in it. How many of you guys have a Bible with your name embroidered? It's not embroidered, I don't even know what it is, but it's on the front in silver. And then you got the silver pages. Ooh, those are nice, but you can't write on these pages because they're too thin. Anyway, that's a Bible I used to try to preach out of. This Bible here, I picked up at Kmart. How many of you guys remember Kmart, okay? I was out with some students, and we had this debate about something in the Bible, so I didn't have a Bible, so I was like, we're going to Kmart, and I found this Bible in Kmart, and it turned into a pretty good little Bible. Um, So there you go. I think I spent $5 on that one. Uh, Over here, this is a fun one. This is a contemporary parallel New Testament. So in this, it actually has eight translations per page. How wild is that? You know you're a Bible nerd when you have one of those, um, because then you don't need all the rest of these. But nonetheless, I have that one. Here's one that my dad got me, uh, another boxed Bible. How many? Yeah, we're still rocking boxed Bibles. This one here's the minister's Bible. And you're like, what does that mean? It means that it tells you how to do a funeral in it in case you get yourself in a pinch and you don't know what to do. You can open it up and you can be like, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to witness the matrimony of... Okay, it has all of that in it. That's all that Bible's about, okay? So we, we have um, a lot of Bibles. There's no way that I could talk about all of these. This here's my study Bible. I like that. That's my New American Standard. This here's a Bible I got when I worked at FCA. It's the Holman Christian Standard Bible. This here was my high school Bible. It's one of my favorites. If you ever see me preaching out of this, it's hot. It's red. It's old school. All right, so that's what that one's about. This one here I had when I went to El Salvador. I liked it. Uh, it was my first time going through the New Living Translation. This here's my athlete Bible because uh, you all have to have an athlete Bible, right? Because it reads different than the other ones. It doesn't. It's the exact same, um, but it looks cool. Um, this here is deja vu because I like this one so much. I saw this one on sale. I was like, I want to go through it again. So this one is not read yet. It's brand new. Um, oh, yes. How many of you guys went to church in the 90s? You had to have a Bible cover in the 90s. Otherwise, you'd, I don't even know what the cover of the book looks like. But this was my Bible. And inside of it, it had zippers so you could keep your pencils in your little package of Tic Tacs. How many of you guys remember Tic Tac? They were so, it was just, it's the thing that happened. Um, and, and man, man alive. I got a brand new Bible I found uh, the other day. And I was like, that's just a cool cover. That's why I have it. I haven't even opened it. Uh, this here's a Bible I got free at a concert. I want it. I don't know why. Uh, this here's a Bible that's a parallel Bible between the New American Standard and the Amplified. <sighs> this here's the Schofield Study Bible. If you want to go old school King James Version, this is old school. You need that for some college material. Um, and then, oh, this here was the Children's Illustrated Bible that my parents bought. And they said, we're going to do devotions every week, son. And just so that those of you who feel guilty about not doing devotions, we did it one time and we never did it again. All right. So I still have it. I haven't done it with my children either. So just confession, you know, nobody's good at family devotions. All right. Um, and, then, and then we have weird Bibles. I have a metal Bible because I thought, yeah, that'll seem up in youth ministry. It's literally, that's metal. Come on, that's awesome. And then my wife bought a waterproof Bible. Just because. So every page is waterproof. You know, so you can spit with it, you can read it in the shower, you can do whatever you want with it. You can take it on a run. So, so I think I have a problem. I have a lot of Bibles. I own a lot of Bibles. And here's the worst part of it. I couldn't fit any more Bibles in the bag. I have about 10 more Bibles up in my office. Ridiculous. I think there's a few hidden around my house. 
I have, and this isn't even counting my wife's Bibles. I saw probably eight or nine of those. Uh, We have a lot of Bibles, and we live in a time in which the Bible is readily available to all of us. You all raised your hand and said, I got one. If you don't, next time you go to a hotel, they got one there for you. Those Gideons left one. You just snag that bad boy. It's yours, all right? Nobody will know. It'll be good. God will be thank you. Like the Gideons would be happy if you took that Bible because nobody's reading it. Um, so we have like Bibles. We, we, we know that this is the number one selling book of all time year after year, and I'm probably keeping that stat alive. I'm buying too many Bibles. Um, but here's the problem with, with our world today is that although this is the number one selling book, of all time, it is also the least read book in America. You all own a copy, but let's be honest, when did you really last read it? Well, let's not talk about that, Pastor. Come on. Listen, I grew up in church. You got bonus points if you remembered your Bible for Sunday school. Anybody remember the good old days? And so you know what you did? You always wanted your bonus points when you went to church. So you couldn't afford to not have your Bible, so you left your Bible in the car. That away, next Sunday, it's right where you needed it, and you got your points and you got your candy. There was no reading it in between Sundays. That would be ridiculous. And so we have an issue that we all own a Bible. The Bible's available to us. Some of us think that the Bible's important, but we don't read it. And the problem is, is that when we don't read the Bible, we don't really know what it says. And so then other people can say some things, and it sounds so good. It's like a good phrase. It's a good saying. It's a good motto. It's a good inscription. And you're like, you know what? That sounds like it's probably from the Bible. But you don't know because you haven't been reading the Bible. And so this series, what we're doing is we're looking at some common sayings, some common phrases that we hear, that we talk about, that we all might think's in the Bible, but when we really look into the Bible, it's not there. And so what I want to do is, is I want us to take a look at what we're actually believing. And I think that some people might say, this is, this is not going to be the series for me, Pastor Alex. You are just going to shame me. You're going to embarrass me. You're going to point out things uh, that I think are in the Bible that aren't in the Bible, and you've already got a big nose, and you're going to be looking down your big nose at me, and I can tell you're a Bible thumper. You love the Bible, apparently, and you're just going to be showing us how smart you are. That's not my intent or my heart or my goal. I want you to know that this isn't a place to have shame or embarrassment, or to point out something, and you'd be like, oh, everybody else knows this but me. No, no, no. Rather, here's what I want. I want us to take some time to think deeply about what we believe, and in the process, actually learn what the Bible really does say. And if we can do that together, we will all be better for it, because we need to be careful when we believe things that God wouldn't necessarily want us to believe, We need to be careful about the things that we let in because sometimes we embrace things as truth when in reality they're not true. And so we want to make sure that our belief system is correct, that we're believing accurately what God has revealed to us through the scriptures. So today, here's our first phrase. Here's where we're going to start God helps those who help themselves. God helps those 
who help themselves. According to pollster George Barna, uh, the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, topped a recent poll as one of the most widely known Bible verses. The only problem is, is it's not a Bible verse. It's not in the Bible. Uh, it's not in any of these, okay? Um, the original quote, some people are like, where did this come from? Uh, what it's based on is this phrase that says, the gods help those who help themselves, which gets traced back into Greek culture. And although the phrase may sound somewhat spiritual, that actual concept is nowhere to be found in the Bible. Uh, Clarence L. Haynes, he writes this. He says that this phrase is used to underscore the necessity for people to take self-initiative. It's still very popular around the globe, especially inspiring those in the self-help community. Though it has ancient origins, the actual English version of this quote we use today was first penned by Algernon Sidney, an English politician who lived in the 1600s. God helps those who help themselves. Now, for us in this room, we may be like, okay, I got it. It's not in the Bible. We're not going to do that. But, but here's... Here's the second part of that. Although we may recognize it's not in the Bible, so many of us still live according to that statement. I know it's not in the Bible, but we still kind of function from that place. See, the phrase emphasizes an importance on self-initiative. This is what we just read. It's all about a primary use to inspire people to get started, to begin to help themselves. Uh, a humorous addition to the phrase that I found is that God helps those who help themselves, but God help those who get caught helping themselves. Here's the thing. In our modern American culture, we idolize self-sufficiency. I don't need you. I got this. Self-sufficiency. You got to look out for number one. Everyone needs to take care of themselves first. Hey, focus on your needs before you focus on anyone else's. We do. We idolize self-sufficiency. And in our world, in America, we have this belief. You don't know maybe where it came from, but we all tend to believe just culturally that you're a good person if you're strong, if you're self-reliant, if you're assertive, and if you're independent. We hear those things and we're like, yeah, that's being American right there. And we love stories of people who come from nothing, who by sheer grit and determination are self-made men and women. I mean, we love those stories. I mean, that's what America was built on. Come on, boy, pull up yourself by your bootstraps. Let's go. It's just a part of our culture. It's not necessarily true of other cultures, but in our Western American mindset, the value of self-reliance and independence, and you don't need to rely on anybody else, is a value that we have. But, but here's the problem. God's plan for our lives, and I hope you know that God has a plan for your life. He loves you. He cares about you. He's got a plan for your life. He's got a plan for my life. His plan for our lives is the exact opposite of self-sufficiency and being self-made. What he has for you, the best that he has for you, is the exact opposite of what we value in our American culture. See, God is not trying to develop you to where you can function independent of him. He's not trying to help you to be sufficient in your own power to where you're proud of your own efforts. He's not trying to help you just to be driven by sheer determination and will. 
Rather, following Jesus is about living a selfless life where you don't focus on your needs, but you rather focus on God and his kingdom, and you allow him to take care of your necessities. This is what Jesus taught. This is kind of the upside-down kingdom. It's opposite. It's backwards from what we think. Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 33, kind of directly oppose this idea that God helps those who help themselves. And in what we're going to read, Jesus reminds us that we actually are best served when we seek God first in our lives rather than when we try to seek security and comfort in our own means. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 6, 25. It says, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food or drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? In the King James translation of this, which was one of the earlier English translations where they took the Greek, they put it into, you know, 17th century English, the year was 1611. I like how it reads. It's interesting. It says this. It says, therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. The part that I like in this is that phrase right there that says, take no thought for your life. In the New Living Translation, we're taking that Greek passage and we're, we're best interpreting it as to say, hey, don't worry about everyday life. But the King James says, take no thought for your life. And when we actually investigate what's this Greek phrase that we're pulling these two kind of English translations from, it, it's speaking to this idea of having your attention, your care divided. It's this idea of distraction. And so we need to be careful that our heart is not distracted from the true object of life. We need to be careful that we're not caught up with something that's secondary and lose what's primary. Jesus continues, verse 26, he, he says, look at the birds. Do you think Jesus could whistle? I don't know. But I've been thinking about it this week. I was like, well, he could do all things, right? Like if God gave him the drink, I guess he could whistle. Is he the best whistler ever? I don't know. Was he whistling like the Andy Griffith song? I don't know. Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you more valuable to him than they are? Everybody say yes. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Everybody say no. And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon, who, who was a king that had lived hundreds of years before, who was one of the most successful kings, he had more money than anything, everything was gold. The guy was rich to no end, super smart, God had given him wisdom. Yet this guy, Solomon, in all his glory, was not dressed as beautifully as the lilies of the field. And Jesus says in verse 30, he says, And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow. Back in those days, fires were made from wood, dried grass, or animal dung. So we have these weeds that are out in this field, this lily, they're just being thrown into the fire. If, if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire, he will certainly care for you. So, so why, why do you worry? Why, why do you have so little faith? So, don't worry about these things, saying, 
What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Can somebody say, like, amen to that? He already knows all your needs. You say, I don't know if God's paying attention to me. He already knows all your needs. I don't know if anybody really knows what I'm going through and the mental anguish and the anxiety and the stress. God already knows all your needs. Final verse. So seek the kingdom of God above all else. He knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. And guess what? He will give you everything that you need. He knows your needs. He'll take care of your needs as long as you seek first the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. William MacDonald in his commentary writes this. He says, in this passage, Jesus strikes at the tendency to center our lives around food and clothing, thus missing life's real meaning. The problem is not so much that we eat and what we wear today, but what we shall eat and wear 10, 20, or 30 years from now. And this type of worry causes us to devote our finest energies to making sure we will have enough to live on. And then before we know it, our lives have passed, and we have missed the central purpose for which we were made. God did not create us in his image with no higher destiny than that we should consume food. We are here to love, worship, and serve him, and to represent his interests on earth. Our bodies are intended to be our servants, not our masters. Going back to our, our passage there, Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 through 33. Again, Jesus says, so don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. You're different than that. You don't have to worry about those things because your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. So seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Jesus teaches us that we have a loving Father who knows each of our physical, spiritual, and emotional needs and who apparently considers it a joy to provide for them. That is when we are all in focused on him. In Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16, we're reminded that we have a high priest who's working on our behalf, and that high priest's name is Jesus. We read this in verse 15. It says that this high priest of ours, Jesus, he understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. Sometimes we forget that Jesus has gone through life on earth, and life on earth is not always easy. There are challenges. There are surprises. There are detours. There are things that you have lived and gone through that you'd never planned to live and go through. And Jesus has been in the same place you are. Jesus has lived this life. The only thing different is that he never gave in to sin, which is incredible. He's kind of like the second Adam. God created Adam in the Garden of Eden without sin. Adam chose to sin. Jesus was created without sin, and he chose not to sin. He is our high priest for this matter. He can relate to us. He understands our weakness. And so here's what verse 16 it says. So... Recognizing that we have somebody on our behalf who understands what we're going through, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. Gracious meaning he's better to you than you deserve. 
Let us come boldly before a God who's better to us than we deserve. And there, at the throne of our great God, we will receive his mercy. We will receive his unmerited favor. We've done nothing to deserve it. And we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So, so question, does God help us? Yes. Hebrews 13, 6 says, so we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, so I will have no fear. But question, does God help us when we help ourselves? No. Not when we're focused on us. God doesn't need us to give him a nudge to act on our behalf. It's not like, well, I'm going to show him that I'm worthy. No, you're not worthy. You're not cute. There's nothing you can do to earn any better favor than you have right now. God doesn't help those who help themselves. Here's who he helps. God helps those who are helpless. God helps those who can't help themselves. And as long as you think you can help yourself, God's not involved. You got it. Go for it. Knock yourself out. See how that works. Only when you come to the end of yourself and you realize, I can't do this on my own. I'm not strong enough. I can't. I, I am literally helpless. God, I need you. God helps that person. It's only when we acknowledge that we cannot do it that God helps us. Trains are coming. It's only when we are humble, right? Humble is a big word that God's helping hand moves in our direction. In 1 Peter 5, 5 and James 4, 6, it says this. It says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. When you think that you can fix your problem on your own, guess what you are? You're proud. Where's God? I ain't part of that. You think you got this? Okay. God resists that. Go ahead. God will sometimes let you come to the end of yourself so that you'll turn your gaze to him. But the cool thing is that God draws near. He gives grace to the humble. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, we read this story. Um, this is a story that Jesus told, and, and it kind of feeds into this idea of, am I, am I proud or am I humble? How do I see myself, and where is God involved in my life? Here's what it says, Luke chapter 18, verse 9. It says, then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Nobody wants to be friends with that person, right? They're a little prideful. They're a little cocky. They, they have great confidence in their own righteousness, and they look down on everybody else. Here's the story he said. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, which was a religious leader, and the other was a despised tax collector. Everybody go, boo. The Pharisee stood by himself, and he prayed this prayer. I thank you, God that I am not like other people, cheaters and sinners and adulterers, and I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I mean, I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But, but the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even to lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he... 
he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, oh, God, oh, God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And look at what Jesus says in verse 14. He says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, return home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So let me be clear. Self-reliance is incompatible with Christianity. We cannot affect our own salvation. We cannot will ourselves to be what we know we're supposed to be. Only God can change our hearts. Only God can change our lives. Only God can make us new. Now, now, trusting in God doesn't mean that I'm just sitting around doing nothing all day expecting God to show up and do everything for me. Just like I can't expect for the dishes to become clean if I never put them in the dishwasher, add soap, and press the start button. There is some effort required of us. But it's when we seek God first in our lives and take time to discover his best for us that all of our other priorities and concerns will fall into their proper place. We no longer have to strive to find security in our own strength. We can rest in his loving arms. We can find healing from our past. And we can learn with his guidance to live in community, to where we can be with other believers and we can learn to trust one another, the people sitting next to you, to where you don't have to go through life carrying your burdens and griefs alone, that we have one another. One of the greatest dangers of believing that God helps those who help themselves is the tendency toward hyper-independence or self-reliance and this belief that when push comes to shove, the only person I can depend on is me. And I think some of us walk with that because we've been hurt and we've trusted people in the past. And so now I don't feel I can trust anybody except me. But when we carry that relationship over to our relationship with God, we'll never experience his best. Truth is, when push comes to shove, the only person that you can really depend on is God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 5, 6-7, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. What are you commanded to do here? Humble yourself. We've all been humbled by others. That's no, no bueno. Chicago Bears last week? The Denver Broncos? Oh, my goodness. The Miami Dolphins put 50 points up against, it was 70 to 20. That's like a horrible NFL game. Can you imagine? They got humbled. It's way better if you humble yourself than to have others humble you. Humble yourselves then in the eye of God, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time that he may exalt you. That means that there's a proper time and there's probably an improper time. We're going to trust him to do it at the proper time. And here's what we got to do, and this is a big deal for so many of you, because I know some of you are walking in here and you've been carrying some stuff. Cast all your anxieties on him. All the stuff that's been keeping you awake at night, that stuff that you're maybe having to take some medicine for, the stuff that's really bothering you, can you take that and learn how to put that on Jesus? You're like, well, I don't want to do that to him. Listen, 
He cares for you, and he can handle it. He can handle it. Today, my encouragement for you is to humble yourself and cast all your anxieties on him. God provides tangibly for those who are helpless and needy. God helps those who can't help themselves. And who does the Bible consider to be helpless? Everyone. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12, as the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. Not even you. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. See, when it comes to our greatest need, which is our need to be rescued from sin and death, there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. All of us have turned from God. All of us have sinned. We are utterly unable to find true spiritual peace through our own efforts. But thankfully, God loves us. And Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, when we were helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. And God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's death is the solution to the problem of sin and death that we can't solve on our own. And it's tempting to think that we might be able to help ourselves out of this predicament. But the Bible teaches us that there's nothing that we can do on our own to find salvation. And so Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, our final scripture for the day, it says that God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this because it's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done so that none of us can boast about it. Our help comes from God alone. And it happens when we turn our lives over to him in faith, trusting in the work of Christ on the cross. It's not something that we work for, and there's certainly nothing we can change about ourselves to make us seem more righteous in God's eyes. Instead, we simply need to come to him humbly, honestly, and allow him to do a work in our lives. We are saved by the passionate, undeserved love of God. It's his gift to us. So this morning, we've distributed some communion elements. If you happen to not have one of these, if you happen to step out for the restroom, just raise your hand. Our usher will make sure to get one of these to you. And you say, well, what is communion? What is this about? Some of you have grown up in church, and this may be something that you did every Sunday. Maybe it's just something that you did without thinking. Um, but let's talk about it for just a minute. Um, a couple things. There's two little tabs. Like, there's a little cellophane piece of plastic that's going to irritate you trying to open it. But if you get it, that's going to take uh, just the top off to get your bread out, um, that little wafer. And then there's going to be a larger tab on there that if you pull that back, that'll expose the juice for you, okay? Now, the importance of communion is not so much what the elements are. You heard Missy earlier inviting those who are joining us online who are unable to be with us today to participate with us. They can go and find whatever they need. It could be water, uh, it could be a piece of bread, it could be a cracker, it could be uh, Gatorade and the goldfish. The elements themselves aren't the important thing. It's what these elements represent. And Jesus gave us this command that he said, here's what I want you to do in remembrance of me. And when he first told the disciples, he didn't, the disciples had no idea he was going to die the next day. They're like, 
what is this? This is so weird. You're asking us to eat your body? What? I mean, he just took a loaf, and he said, this represents my body. He took a cup. He said, this is going to represent the blood that shed for you, and he passed it to them. But now as we reflect back on that moment, there's this thing that has happened for the last 2,000 years with all Christians, with all Christ believers, is that they have consumed Christ, that they have said, I want to be one with him, not me independently, and I'm putting these elements in my pocket and inviting Jesus to walk through life with me. No, I want him to become one with me, that I am lost, I am humbled, and it is him and I, I am hidden in Christ. And it's through his broken body and that his blood that I can become a new person. I'm no longer Alex Moore. I am now Alex Jesus Christ Moore because Jesus lives in me. And when the world sees me, they don't see the old me. They see the new me because God's doing a work in me. And as long as I remain humble and continue to focus on him and his righteousness and his kingdom, I'm going to be a new person. I hope you can't recognize me in five years. I hope the transformation in my life is so great. I hope I'm so much more patient, so much more peaceful, so much more at ease, so much more not worrying that I am a new person. That You'd be like, wow, I don't know what's going on with you. I want to be in process. Owning more Bibles isn't going to do that. God's Holy Spirit in my life is. Reading these is going to give fuel for God's Holy Spirit to speak to me, but it's God's Holy Spirit that changes lives. And if you don't have God's Holy Spirit, you can pick these things up and you can read them and they're not going to have the same life to them that they will when God's Spirit lives in you. Because the same Spirit that spoke to authors thousands of years ago to pen these words is the same guy that's living inside of me, speaking to me. And so as we approach communion today, maybe you've never taken communion in church, but today you realize, you know what? I need God's help. And I'm helpless. And I can't do this on my own. Maybe you've kind of came to the end of yourself. And you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus. And if so, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to invite you to participate with us in communion. I'm going to invite you to say, God, I want to be one with you. I want you to be the Lord. I want you to be first in my life. Now, if you're not interested in following Jesus, then communion is not really for you. This is something that we do as a spiritual act of obedience and worship to God to say that we're trusting you. Our belief is in you. We know that we're saved not on our own efforts, but because of what you did on the cross. And so as we prepare to take these elements, let's bow our heads. God, thank you so much for your love, that you love the world in our sinful place when we were rejecting you so much that you sent your son Jesus so that we might have the hope of eternal life. And God, I pray that this morning that we would humble ourselves, that we wouldn't think that we have to take the initiative in order for you to move in our lives. No, God, you've already taken the initiative. You've already taken the first step. You've already been drawing us to you. May we just simply respond to your leadership. May we allow you to be the one in charge, not us. And may we be a follower of yours. Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifekc.com.